I'm uh, I'm not wired up to that little harness this morning, so that means I have to sort of stand still here behind the pulpit, right? Which is, uh, here we go down here. Good, good. I didn't think about that. I'm the kind of guy that likes to roam around, you know what I mean? All right. Our text this morning is pretty simple and singular. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. Thanks. Just a few years before the pilgrims had landed on the shores of New England, in the Mayflower, controversy erupted in the Netherlands and spread throughout Europe and then around the world. It began with the theological faculty of a Dutch institution that was committed to Calvinistic teaching. And some of the professors there began to have second thoughts about issues relating to the doctrines of election and predestination. As this theological controversy spread across the country, it upset the church and theologians of the day. Finally, a synod was convened. Issues were squared away, and the views of a certain people re- were rejected, including those of a man by the name of Jacobus Arminius. So there's a history, therefore, of controversy around these issues that persists to this day. Calvinists and Arminians, very generally speaking, with a number of different flavors in between there. So when someone claims to be a Calvinist, they're simply saying that Calvin was thoroughly consistent with what the Scripture itself teaches regarding the triune God's sovereign redemptive work. Arminians, of of course, disagree. So it it doesn't mean uh, to be a Calvinist is to agree with everything that Calvin said otherwise, uh, but certainly in these key doctrines. To this point, Pastor Gary and Todd and Alex Tibbet have preached on these five principles of God's sovereign grace. So they spoke of total depravity, or as R.C. Sproul, I think, more accurately calls it, Radical corruption. The entire person is corrupt. The will, the intellect, the emotion, the spirit, the body. It doesn't mean that we are all Hitlers, but that we all have the same nature as Hitler. Hitler is our brother in Adam. Unconditional election, or again, R.C. Sproul better put a sovereign election. There's absolutely no condition in us now or any condition that God sees in us in the future that moves God to rescue us. It was a decision God made in eternity past before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians. Limited atonement, or again, definite atonement. Christ actually atoned for some sinners. The atonement was not a work of Christ that he did that made atonement possible. It accomplished the work of redemption and left nothing for man to decide. In irresistible grace or effectual grace, God's grace overcomes our sinful resistance to his sovereign will and grace. And finally, the perseverance of the saints, or better, the preservation of the saints. If you've been united to God in Christ, you will remain so. Nothing can change that, including you. You know, there's been a lot of renewed talk in popular culture in the media these days about UFOs. Uh, Megan Kelly in her podcast recently had a guest named Lou Elizondo, the former director of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And he made some interesting points about the limits of human ability to fully perceive the physical realities we find ourselves in. 
UFOs could be, he said, from outer space, or they could be from inner space, or they could be from the space in between. And that the universe is far more complex than we ever thought. Realities our unaided five senses have no access to. We see pretty stars in the sky at night, but if you use a radio telescope, you would see infrared. You would see ultraviolet. You would see nebulas, a number of other things you can't see with the naked eye. We are bathed right now even in physical things called wireless signals. Cosmic radiation is presently passing through all of our bodies. Neutrinos, a little fundamental particle of physics everywhere going through us. And we have only five fundamental senses to judge our reality and our universe. Ninety-nine percent of the universe we cannot even see or interact with, and yet it's real. And the conclusion he drew is that outer space is not the only reality and that we may be sharing space with things we have never been able to interact with without advances in technology. I'm not arguing for or against little green men, and neither is he. But it reminds me a little of our Old Testament reading this morning. There are spiritual realities going on all around us all the time that we cannot see, but God could reveal them. When considering the doctrines of grace that are summarized in Tulip, we are, in a sense, running into spiritual realities that we may have limited access to fully grasping. We certainly know that unbelievers have no access at all to these things. For Paul says as much in his letter to the church at Corinth. The person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit. Because it's foolishness to him. He's not able to understand it since it is spiritually evaluated. But even for those who have the Spirit, right, there are some things that are just hard. And they're even harder if we come to them with a fully decided mind that is not open to additional insight. It's in our nature to listen to positions that already agree with our own. It's, it's why there's so much opinion instead of news. We love to hear our own opinions repeated back to us. It's almost as much fun as looking in the mirror. The doctrines nuanced in Tulip are like that to a degree. Some Christians are simply taught and they accept them without really sort of chewing on and digesting Others accept four out of five and live with a secret discomfort and dis-ease over the idea of limited or definite atonement. Some reject the notion of irresistible grace. Still others remain convinced that a Christian can lose their favor with God and can fall away completely and lose their salvation, become unrescued, as it were. However, we are not without help to access the physical realities of the universe and are aided by advanced technology. And we are also, if we're, we're not limited spiritually that way, we have enhanced, magnified access to the spiritual dimension by means of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. So my aim this morning is to wrap up this preaching series by cross-examining tulip, the title of our sermon. Tulip cross-examined. It will survey the wondrous cross to examine what is contained in tulip. In other words, what does the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ reveal to us about total depravity or radical corruption? What does the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ 
revealed to us about unconditional or sovereign election, about limited or definite atonement, about irresistible or effectual grace, about the perseverance or preservation of the saints. And I hope that you are persuaded, as Paul was, to boast in nothing except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For if you are so persuaded, then you will see that you are crucified to the world and that the world is crucified to you. Now, I don't know the details of this synod that was held back in Calvin's day in which these doctrines were in dispute, nor do I know the order in which the controversies were engaged. However, I must think that total depravity or radical corruption comes first because to the extent that we grasp this biblical truth, so will we readily endorse the four that follow. If we grasp total depravity, then the other four are not quite so difficult. Our struggles with what might be the other four, I think, come from our inability to grasp just how radically corrupt we are. And that if we did, we would happily endorse the four that follow. Think about the world in Noah's day. The action God took speaks to the level of depravity and corruption in the world. So his actions were the correct response to what was going on in the world. And Genesis 6, 5 tells us the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So God killed them all. He started over by just keeping a few, right? And what happens as soon as God delivers and gets them through all that? Noah gets drunk and passes out. Some years later, God destroys an entire civilization but lets Lot and his family escape. What happens within a day or two? God's lawyers get him drunk and rape him in his sleep. Read Romans chapter 1. Some of you know our brother and sister, uh, Jeff and Ruth Hurley. Found out last week that Ruth had a bilateral mastectomy. The solution to the problem tells us something about the nature of the problem. Right? So keeping with the analogy, humans do not have stage 1 or stage 2 or even stage 3 cancer. Dangerous but curable with some medical intervention and a change of lifestyle and diet. No, by nature, humans have stage four terminal cancer and deny treatment is necessary and instead tell the doctor he's an idiot. That's human nature outside of Christ. And Jesus, the incarnate son of God, God, the son on the cross. What does that solution tell us about the problem of our depravity? The thief's cross wasn't sufficient to save the thief. His depravity required a different cross. Jesus Christ is, as we say, prophet, priest, and king. Now, the ancient prophets were often directed by God to act in certain ways that would reveal deep truths. And these are called sign acts. Sign acts are nonverbal actions and objects, un I'm sorry, intentionally employed by the prophets so that the message content was communicated through them to the audience, something like a visual aid. So we see some strange things. We see Ezekiel had to cut off his hair and burn a third of it. And another third he had to, he had to cut off and strike with a sword. <laughs> this guy whacking his own hair with a sword. And then there was some other things he had to do, right? Well, well, this was a sign act to show judgment was coming against Israel in the form of scattering fire and pestilence. 
Ezekiel was also told to eat bread that he had baked over human dung. I want you to eat this bread. I want you to bake it over human excrement. And this was to show that the people of Israel would eat their bread defiled in captivity. The sign act. Isaiah was told to walk around and preach naked and barefoot to the Egyptians and the Cushites. I thought of acting that up here this morning. My wife encouraged me not to, so you can thank her for that. <laughs> to warn the Egyptians and the Cushites that the Assyrians would lead them away captive, quote, both the young and the old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. That's why he was told to walk around, breach naked and barefoot. Strange way to have to act. Sign acts. Imagine then as a prophet, as a prophet, what kind of sign act the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ is. Right? Naked body, flesh torn, face unrecognizable, cold, darkness over the earth, which is always a sign of God's judgment. Feelings of utter aloneness, denied, betrayed. Jesus on the cross is the embodiment of depravity. Or as Paul said, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. The cross reveals radical corruption. The cross reveals God's response to human depravity. That's God's response to human depravity. It wasn't just, you know, in Roman days it was considered the greatest possible shameful way to be put to death and was reserved only for really non-citizens and, and slaves and things. Even they saw it as that way. God chose that for a particular reason. He said, I want to say something to you about depravity. The cross warns everyone that this is the wrath that awaits unrepentant sinners that die in their radical corruption. What does the cross tell us about unconditional election or sovereign election? Does what we know about the cross of Jesus have any spiritual, leave any spiritual or intellectual space for imagining that there is some condition that God sees in us either now or at some point down the road that merits his choice of us? Can we truly maintain the position that God looked down the corridors of time, saw that he would come, saw who would come to believe in Christ and elect on that basis or to choose us on that basis? Because the cross of Jesus fulfills the name of Jesus. You shall name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus did not die for an unknown people on that cross. He died for those whom the Father gave him. Those whom the Father chose. God does not wait for us to have a new heart so that we may ask him for a new heart. No, God gives a new heart to those whom he has chosen. He gives them new life by crucifying them with Christ and raising them up again. I would remind you of the words of our Lord Jesus in John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me. Any so-called decision a person makes for Christ is a decision that necessarily follows from God's sovereign decision for that person. Jesus told his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Michael Horton says, we can no more make Christ our Savior than we can make him our creator. <laughs> we can no more, no more make Christ our, 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 our sovereign Lord we can no more make him our savior than we can make him our creator. He already is. And again, I exhort you to bring the scenes of the cross of the Lord Jesus before you. 
since the cross reveals the depth of our depravity, our radical corruption, then it cannot be successfully argued that there is any capacity in humankind that can acknowledge its own depravity. Therefore, it cannot respond in faith to Christ unassisted by divine power. And here we come to acknowledge the spiritual elephant in the room. This is where we feel, so many of us, we must tiptoe through the tulip. <laughs> what does the cross of the Lord Jesus tell us about limited atonement or definite atonement? This is the one that troubles. I'm going to remind you that, that's what, that this is what the doctrine is. Jesus atoned for a particular or chosen people, but he did not make atonement for all people. Some will pass on to eternal punishment having not been rescued, having not been reconciled to God. And there's no sense arguing or discussing the question of whether or not his atonement was sufficient to save all, because that is purely conjecture, despite John Owen's great effort to convince. I just don't see that, and I don't see that the Scripture has anything to say about whether or not it was sufficient to atone for all, but God determined it would only atone for some. It's not part of the biblical discussion. So it won't be part of ours. But furthermore, this is good news. This is the gospel. That Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That everything submits to him. That all authority on heaven and earth is given to Jesus. That's the good news. And it's good news for us because that means his redemption is complete. On the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. What was finished? Phase one of redemption? He did not cry out, it is possible. What was finished? The work the Father gave him. He accomplished salvation. He came to give his life a ransom for many, and, and so he did. So who among humanity hears the cry of Jesus from the cross? John 6. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My Father gave them to me. The Father and I are one in the work of redemption. John 17, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. All that the Father gave Jesus have their name tattooed, so to speak, on the crucified Lord. Psalm 22, on the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't have time to fully unpack that, Psalm. Suppose I sang the words, And can it be? Well, you would, right? you would know what comes next, right? You know from those three words the wonderful song that follows, and really you know everything that's in it. You can, we have this great ability to know everything that's sort of in that song by just a couple of verses. In fact, yesterday I was at a wedding, and my sister, we were wondering what a song was. She took out her phone, and she has this app on it where all it has to do is hear two chords, and it's able to tell you what the song is. <laughs> so we're not quite there. Maybe some of you are. Up at, I know uh, from my own experiences past at Camp Impact, you start to hear the, the opening one or, one or two words of a song, and all of a sudden, all these lunatics are up and at it, you know, jumping and ranting and running around. It's, it's just part of, the, it's part of it. You just know what's, you know what's in that song. You know from those two words what that song represents. If I say four score and seven years ago, you know I'm onto something in our nation that was momentous. The Gettysburg Address. And all that represents. Well, psalms were like that. Quoting the opening line of a psalm had a similar impact on the ancient Hebrews for whom the psalms were part of the worship, worshiping community's liturgy or customary religious observance. 
So I'm not suggesting at all that there wasn't a sense of isolation or loneliness on the cross. But by quoting that the, opening, the opening line of that psalm, Jesus was also recalling all that the psalm declares. In the past, one of the hymns that we've sung is, The Father Turns His Face Away from Jesus on the Cross. And many of us walk around quoting that as if it's a Bible verse. But that is not accurate. And we should not sing it. The psalm, in fact, goes on to say, For he has not despised or abhorred abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The psalm, while a psalm that acknowledges genuine, terrific suffering, which was used by the various, at various times by the Hebrew people to sort of uh, shout their collective suffering, to let know what was going on, at the same time proclaims a great victory. And this is why we can call it, this is why it fits in so well with definite atonement. Jesus was declaring a very certain victory up there as well. The psalm ends with, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. When did that happen? When Christ was crucified. When Paul was yet an unbeliever. Now I must address a text that many bring up with respect to the doctrine of limited atonement. There are a few of them, or definite atonement. This one's one of the biggest ones, and that's John 3.16. For the, the objection is often raised, see here the scripture says, whosoever believes. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But there's a misunderstanding in that. This verse does not say that anyone can believe. In fact, the text literally reads, so that the ones believing, or so that the believing ones would not perish. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, so that the believing ones would not perish. So the text does not support the notion that this verse indicates that Jesus was sent and that anyone can believe. In fact, just a few verses back, Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus was either very confused about the atonement he was about to make, or we're very confused at times about the atonement that Jesus did make. That is not a verse that says that anyone has an ability. Any more than I could say that whoever in here has a $10 bill can come up here right now and grab an instrument and start making noise. That doesn't mean that any of you can. Because if you have a $10 bill, you can. <laughs> And that might be a little scary, Mike. I'm sorry to scare you there, brother. And then, so before we move on to irresistible grace, I simply offer that in a very real sense, every belief system limits the atonement of Jesus in some fashion. Everyone limits the atonement of Jesus in some fashion. Those who believe that God looked down the corridor of time and elected those who would believe must concede that the atonement is limited only to those who believe. Unless someone is a universalist, which is the belief that Jesus ultimately saves everyone, in which case the atonement is indeed unlimited, then all believe in some form of limit to the atonement. Everybody limits the atonement. The question is who gets to limit, or better, who yet gets to define the atonement, God or man? Who is sovereign? God determines. God determines. If we return to the question of total depravity or radical corruption, I think the answer is obvious. 
as to who gets to define the atonement. I hope you're likewise persuaded. God purchased His own, chosen with His own blood. He did not create a tab to be gradually drawn against by the choice of man. And this is to God's glory and His chosen people's great benefit and assurance. I won't get into the discussion of, well, why call it going to salvation? That's, that's a different discussion. Call it going to salvation because Scripture says call everyone to believe. What does the cross of the Lord Jesus tell us about irresistible or effectual grace? Paul reminds the Corinthian church that he didn't try to win them over with persuasive words, but was determined to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Many people are drawn to churches because of charismatic personalities, and many people linger in churches they ought not linger in because of charismatic and dynamic personalities. And other things. There was nothing all that exciting about Paul, apparently. As we, you've heard about him enough times. Clearly couldn't see that well. He had to have been. I mean, you can't take the kind of beating, stoning, flogging, shipwreck. I mean, he had to have been a mess. He had to have had a limp. He had to have been. I mean, Paul wasn't, you know, he wasn't in it for that. He didn't have that million-dollar smile that our buddy Joel Osteen has out there on the West Coast. Our younger brother, Brendan, recently told us of his conversion, the event attended by his viewing of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. I saw that bloody scene. The Roman centurion, upon seeing Jesus die at Calvary, confessed Jesus as the Son of God. My own conversion experience began at scenes of Calvary in the Roman Catholic display known as the Stations of the Cross. Something awful happened there on the cross. Something that eventually rendered me and many others full of awe. <laughs> See, there, God's grace had its intended effect. Somehow in His divine power, God reveals in Jesus crucified something we could not see otherwise. By the Spirit. It's the only way that could be seen. The Holy Spirit granted us a spiritual perception of grace that natural man cannot perceive. That's why to those that are perishing the cross is foolishness or a means of embarrassment and stumbling. To we who are being saved is the power of God. Therefore, each of us was transported. Each of us was transported by the Spirit to the Holy of Holies through the torn veil of Christ's flesh. It was, as we mentioned before, among other things, a sign act carried out by Jesus in his prophetic office. It is... This is my body broken for you. This is the blood that fills the cup for remission of sins. Act. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. So it's not the miracles of Jesus that draw people to him. It's not his teaching that so powerfully draws. It is the grace of holy carnage. It is the grace of holy carnage where we are shown the wrath that we are not going to bear because God in His love is bearing our sins in His own body on the tree. Let the saints weep tears of overflowing gratitude at this. And this grace of God has its full effect on us who by that grace repent and believe on Jesus. So we discover that there is something that God cannot do. God cannot through language alone. Even words that God would inspire reveal the depth of His grace to us but through the Word become mutilated flesh. 
Jesus on Calvary, grace is fully explained. And it's that same grace in that same scene that the saints must prostrate themselves before and come back to over and over in the mind and soul so that we remain steadfast and endure to the end. For those who endure to the end will be saved and we run with endurance the redemption race set before us by resting constantly before the throne of grace. And this brings us to the final matter of perseverance or the preservation of the saints, which really is a better title because that again suggests that it's God doing the work. We preserve only be, we persevere only because by God his God's grace and power preserves us. And this preservation is carried out by the intercession of Christ. Whoever lives to make intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Jesus Christ is our faithful high priest and he makes faithful high intercession. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God interceding for us. John 6:37 and 40 all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Who does Jesus raise up on the last day? The ones that the Father gives to Him. They have eternal life. I will raise Him up. No one will snatch Him out of my hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch Him out of my Father's hand. See, the Lord will rescue us from every evil deed and bring us safely into His heavenly kingdom. We don't see what that looks like. We don't see right now what Jesus' intercession looks like. We can't see him praying as the disciples did. Yet Jesus on the cross is our faithful high priest on the cross. He's offering himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And this is fully available to our imaginations and meditations because we know what that intercession looks like. We read what medical experts say happened there to Jesus. We can bring our imaginations deep into that. We even hear his intercession when he declares, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That intercession brought a Roman centurion to his knees, confessing Jesus' deity. When Jesus, with great strain, breathed out the words, Father, into your hand I commend my spirit, he was at the same time commending the spirits of all his people who are in him crucified. Our preservation is assured because of the definite atonement accomplished by Jesus for the sins of his people. Jesus' present intercession is the ongoing follow-up to his intercession of atonement. Jesus' passion to intercede it never fades. He, he delights to intercede. It never diminishes. It never atrophies. The honeymoon is never over between Jesus and his people. Friday night, Aurora heard some noise outside and it made her afraid. And she was nervous about going to sleep. I told, told her, don't worry. Daddy is strong and I have guns. No one's going to hurt you tonight. That's intercession. Great movie scene of intercession. Here he goes again with the Lord of the Rings. This fantastic scene, I think, of intercession. It's a scene where, you know, Frodo is completely spent, so... If you don't know the story, there's these two creatures called hobbits. They've been making their way through all kinds of everything to get to Mount Doom where they can destroy this ring, which is basically going to turn the world into utter evil. Okay? So they finally get to the place where they can go, and, and Frodo is spent. I mean, he's got nothing. 
And so this is a scene where it's dark and it's gray and it's gloomy and there's ash flying through the sky and you can see some lava shooting out and he's just, his lips are all parched and split open and spent and his face is somewhat sunken in. He's just a mess. And Sam, his good friend, is with him who's been helping him all along the way. And he, 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 he because, because Frodo was just sort of collapsed on the ground, Sam kind of cradles him in his arms and he says, do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? Now the Shire is where the hobbits lived and it was this lush green place where life just doesn't get any better. Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It will be spring soon and the orchards will be in blossom and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thickets and Sam is crying at this point. He says, and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields. And, and so Frodo opens his eyes and looks at him. And eating the first of the strawberries and cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? Frodo says, no, Sam. I can't recall the taste of food. Nor the sound of water or the touch of grass. I'm naked in the dark. There's nothing. There's nothing. No veil between me and the wheel of fire. I can see with my waking eyes. And then Sam says, then let us be rid of it once for all. Come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. Because he, he couldn't carry that ring, but he picked up Frodo and started walking up the mountainside. That is intercession. That's what intercession looks like. What Mike was talking about this morning was intercession. I mean, this, this dismisses every notion we have that God is only good to us when we're in his good favor and acting like good little boys and girls. Mike was just talking about just being in the throes of... And any man that deals with technology knows exactly where Mike was at that moment, where you got a million and one things going wrong. At that moment, you know, and, and things are nuts, and when you're thinking, oh, I've, I've failed, or I've done this, or I've done that, and my 14-year-old son was watching me, and I set a bad example, what happens? God intercedes with a tremendous need that he had. He wasn't waiting for Mike to get his act all together and scold him and correct him. It's perseverance. Preservation of the saints comes from God. That's what gets us through. More than anything else could, that cross of Jesus that Paul boasts in reveals our total depravity, God's unconditional election, the sure atonement of God's chosen, effectual grace explained, and the priestly intercession that perseveres the saints of God. Any other attempt to understand these things eventuates in a, diminish, in a diminishment of the glory of Christ. Which version of Christ do we want to be conformed to? One cannot simultaneously boast in the cross of Christ and anything else even remotely. Here is my formula. Christ plus anything equals nothing. It is subtraction by addition. For how else can we possibly consider ourselves crucified to the world and the world to us except by boasting in the cross of Jesus? The Christian and the world have nothing in common. No programs, no grasp of deity, nothing in common with the world. We share absolutely nothing with the world when it comes to, if we were to, to remember these five things and all that the cross explains to us, the explanatory power of the cross to help us understand this little acronym, we would see that we truly have absolutely nothing in common with the world. That we must consider ourselves crucified to the world. You've got to meditate on that and what that means and what it means that the world is crucified to you. But in some, it basically means we have nothing to do with each other. We have nothing in common. It is that different. The world's ways are idolatrous. They cannot conceive rightly about God. And every 
Any wrong conception of God leads to wrong conception of human beings created in his image and therefore to counterproductive living. It is not coincidence that church attendance, those who profess to be genuine followers of Christ, is way down, while at the same time we are being forced to recognize somebody, if, if, a, if a biological male wants to be called she, and will be punished. There will be punitive action taken if that doesn't happen. How else do you explain that in this world? How does that possibly get explained? The differences between us and the world are so stark. And that's not just a, a statement about moral. we act more morally than they. It's a statement about what it means to be a human being and what God had in mind when he made human beings and how there's an attempt right now to deconstruct what it means to be human. That's why we must consider ourselves crucified to the world. Only by doing so will we know how to respond to the world. When you feel your heart wander and wrestle with sin and the devil... We turn to Jesus on the cross. You'll understand that what you are living is the remaining stain of the depravity he reveals there. And then recall there was no condition in you that predisposed God to merit his favor, either then or now, because at your most depraved moment, he is revealing on the cross that he is there for you at your most depraved moment. The most depraved moment you can think of in your entire life before you knew Christ, the darkest thing that if you knew right now, if anyone saw you, would be humiliated and shamed and embarrassed. That thing, long before you came to Christ, Jesus was revealing on the cross how he was dealing with it. When you wonder if you have enough faith or really believe or doubt yourself, let the words, it is finished, echo from the cross to your intellect and emotions. And when you need grace, go to the cross where Jesus was enthroned as king and be drawn near to his heart again. And when you wonder how to make it another moment, see his high priestly intercession there on the cross. This is discipleship. Amen. Lord, help us today to... Remain humble and cross-focused and, and cross-zealous, the cross of Jesus. Again, let its scenes come before us. Lead us often to the cross. Help us to just be persuaded by grace and humble us. Show us any place where we boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grow us that we may continue to be crucified to the world and the world to us. In his name who reveals all, from the throne of his cross we pray. Amen.